Welcome to PageCast, the book-centered podcast series brought to you by Jonathan Bull Publishers. In this episode, Tekla Kielfi, the founder and editor of Tex in the City, will be chatting to Coco Menes, the incredible author of the captivating new Cleopatra and Frankenstein. Described as both hilarious and heartbreaking, Cleopatra and Frankenstein will both entertain and deeply move you. It heralds the arrival of a brilliant and daring new talent in the literary world. Menes has crafted a stunning debut novel that explores the profound impact of spontaneous decisions on the course of our entire lives. It delves into the imperfect yet enchanting relationships that emerge from unexpectedly perfect evenings. Once again, thanks for tuning into PageCast. We hope you thoroughly enjoyed this episode as Tekla Kjolfi engages in a thought-provoking dialogue with Coco Menes. Happy listening. Hello and welcome to Jonathan Ball Publishers PageCast podcast. My name is Tekla Cholfi and I am a journalist, podcast host and the founder of Tex in the City, which is a music media company in South Africa. Today I am chatting to Coco Melos, the author of Cleopatra and Frankenstein, the Smash Sunday Times bestseller and Goodreads Choice Award finalist. This book is Equarts hilarious and heartbreaking and entertaining and super moving and I'm fangirling very hard right now. Coco, welcome to PageCast. How are you today? Oh, thank you so much for that lovely introduction. I am well and very happy to be here. Your debut novel has been out for over a year now, but I have to congratulate you because it's stunning and quite an addictive read too, if I have to be honest. I I honestly couldn't put it down. But what has the last year and a bit been like with the explosion around your debut novel? Um, I mean, it didn't really feel like an explosion, to be honest. It's perhaps because reading is such a, it's such a solitary thing, you know? So it's not like a TV show where you can see the streaming numbers as they're happening. Like when the book first came out, I mean, it was an incredible feeling, but people's experience of the novel, I wasn't there as they were reading it. So I, it was, you know, I would get like DMs on Instagram and I would hear from some readers, but my life didn't really change. And, and, you know, my daily life, I just carried on writing. And then slowly, it's been kind of like a slow build, almost like an avalanche in the distance where like, I've started over the past year to be like, wow, like people are really reading the book. (laughs) And it's felt incredible. It's just been the most, you know, you always hope, I mean, I always hope when I create something that it's going to reach, you know, not just as many people as possible, but it's going to reach the right people, you know, the ones who needed it, the ones who wanted this story. And um, I, I think it has. So I feel delighted. Do you maybe feel like it's been a bit of a slow burn because it's ta- well, I mean, at the back book, you you write that it took seven years for you to complete this, but sort of you know has been has been going along for quite a while. Yes, I mean, and I always want to amend that because <laughs> this was my fault because I said seven years from start to finish, which was seven years from like putting the first word on the page to the book actually coming out and being available for someone to walk into a bookstore and pick up. But two of those seven years was waiting for pub. So it was a seven-year process for me, but it wasn't seven years of writing. It was, I don't know why I think this sounds so much better. I'm like, it was only five years of writing this book, which is still an extremely long time to write a book. At least it was for me because I started it when I was 25. So that was, you know, a large portion of my adult life spent with these characters. But yes, I think, you know, 
it certainly never ever felt to me like a kind of overnight <laughs> sensation or you know a quick turnaround i had been living with these characters for so many years by the time that they met readers and also you know i sold the book in 2020 and then that came out in 2022 so you have this long waiting period you know knowing that the book is going to come out but it's not actually available to people yet so the whole thing has felt i had a lot of time to prepare which was good after having lived with all of these characters for so long like you just said how how was it to have them received by people with arms wide open and so positively well some of them i mean <laughs> yes yeah, some i mean not everyone it's like you know these i wrote you know a collection of characters that's you know seven different perspectives that i write from in this book and then mm. there's many more characters than that who are important to the story and you know they're frustrating characters they're i hope lovable characters they're deeply human they're incredibly flawed you know, they don't always act on their best interests. That's part of what makes, I hope, the story interesting, you know, is watching people not always make, I think, the right decision or the decision that's going to lead to the most harmony and peace in their life. It's so interesting because there's this real thing around likability of characters in the moment. Like, is a character likable? Are they not likable? And, you know, I do slightly push back against that because I think the role of fiction is not to present human beings as they should be, but I'm interested in exploring human beings as they are. And the closer you are to a character, I think the more messy and complex they're going to feel because you're not just going to get the side of them that they present publicly. You know, you're going to get their inner thoughts, their inner world, their inner turmoil. I'm so delighted that people feel connected to the characters and they feel like they're real people. And that also, I think, should mean sometimes feeling frustrated with them or disagreeing with them or even hating them. And that for me, like, that's part of the joy of fiction. You know, I'm, I'm not just writing to... I don't know, have these sort of perfect model characters that everyone can be like, oh, yes, that's how I would have done it. Part of the excitement is being like, I would never do that. And that's why it's fun to read about people who are so different to us. A hundred percent. And also as the characters go through different things in the novel, our relationship as a reader with them changes. You know, we might like them at, at, at times, we might not like them at times. But one of the things that for me was very striking is the opening chapter like i can almost i can almost smell that chill in the new york air on new year's eve as cleo and frank kind of fall into each other's lives how important is that initial setting of the scene when you're writing what what was your your main objective with that very striking opening chapter I'm so glad that you said that you could smell the chill because one of the things that um I did in the drafting process is when I was probably in like the draft three of the book, someone said to me, there's not really any weather in the book. <laughs> like the seasons don't really change. And I was like, oh my God. <laughs> like, And I went back in and I was like, okay, like it's January, it's cold. Let's put in a mention yeah. that it's cold, you know, <laughs> or like, let's show in some way that it's cold or it's August, it's hot. Let's, you know, have, what are they wearing? So I'm like, that's, and it's all these things you know there's so many layers to a scene and I am so character focused when I write I'm like so in the voices of the characters that I can truly forget to mention the weather which of course is really important when you're reading you know to set the scene so that makes me happy that that worked out that first chapter you know what's interesting is I actually wrote that chapter probably three years into working on the book 
the initial first chapter of the book for many years was the second chapter, which is a wedding scene where we meet um, the vast majority of the re- of the characters in the novel. And it was one of those things where I liked that scene, but it wasn't a strong opening because I think it was overwhelming for the reader. It's a little bit like it's really nice to go with a friend to a party so you have someone that you could talk to. And I was kind of throwing the reader into the party with no no guide, you know, and just there to meet everyone all at once. So I added this initial first chapter, which is Cleo and Frank's very first meeting before they decide to have this, you know, very rushed marriage. I wanted, you know, character is everything to me. And I really, really want the characters to feel when when you meet them that they've already lived such a full life, you know, and you have such a strong sense of their history and their nature and their kind of idiosyncratic use of language. So one of the, it, may, it was easier to write a first chapter when I'd already been living with the characters for three years at that point. And I wanted to do it, I, I wanted it to be dialogue first as a chapter, you know, it's a pretty dialogue heavy scene. And I think because dialogue really pulls you into a book, I find when I'm reading, it's very light on the page. It's not these long, long paragraphs of exposition. And I wanted to feel that like back and forth, like very jet, you know, soft, kind of like a badminton shuttle being pinged back and forth between Cleo and Frank. And this sense of like a rhythmic dialogue that was like pitter patter, pitter patter, pitter patter, pitter patter. So I, I listened to this drum track that had that beat. It was going like back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And it kind of felt like a heartbeat, like fluttering. And so I listened to that on repeat over and over and over while I was writing the dialogue between them. And I hoped that what it, you kind of get in the body while you're reading that chapter is a sense of like your heart, your pulse is quickening, your heart rate goes up. It should feel exciting, kind of effervescent, like fizzing, like champagne, like that feeling of just when you first meet someone and you have this undeniable, instant, electrifying chemistry. So that was what I was hoping to achieve with that first chapter. And I, I hope it worked. <laughs> It 100% worked. You created such a beautiful, intimate moment that when we hit the next chapter, the second chapter, where they're now married and you're introducing all of these characters, my initial thought was, no, like I wanted to just be the two of them. It's so perfect. Like now all of these people are going to come and ruin everything. (laughs) I know that's the danger. I think a lot of people had that response actually, because, you know, a very, a much more traditional way of writing this book would have been to only ever stay with Cleo and Frank and do it as a really classic two-hander where we just go back and forth between their perspectives. And um, I, and I understand why people some like, you know, it's like, it's a good thing that people want to stay with your two main characters, you know, but I was like, no, no, (laughs) I'm afraid we're going off with some side characters for a little while. (laughs) Oh my gosh. And then, you know, you realize it's, it's six months later and they're married and you're like, uh oh, like why, what happened? And then you find out that her visa is expiring, but they actually do love each other. And Marriages are complicated. Anyone who's married, I'm sure, will tell you that. But I particularly felt that Frank changing his vows and telling Cleo, when the darkest part of you meets the darkest part of me, it creates light. Like that's a, it's a huge foreshadowing of what they're going to go through individually, but also together as a Mm. couple. How would you describe the type of marriage that your protagonists have? I mean, I think and that line where the darkest part of you meets the darkest part of me, it creates light has become the kind of mantra of the novel. And I was so happy that so many readers picked up on that line and it gets repeated again later in the novel. I actually have this postcard right here that my publisher made for me that has that line on it. 
which I love and I keep it by my desk. I know, which is so, it's lovely. And we make t-shirts and I think, I think it has that line on it as well. So, <laughs> And I thought that line was, it really captured everything that Cleo and Frank were looking for in each other. That is such a, it's a hopeful statement. And yet, as you said, it is foreshadowing. Oh, I'm like, that's not going to work. <laughs> you know, like that is, that is a wonderful sentiment and a beautiful idea. But I think Cleo and Frank rush headlong into this marriage so quickly. And the reality is, I think people that come from, you know, this is a generalization, because that's not fair. But in, in the case of these two characters, they come from unstable childhoods and backgrounds. They are both desperately seeking a sense of security and love that they did not receive as children and have not yet found as adults. And I think when people have more security in their life and feel that sense of being loved and belonging and being wanted, they don't feel the need to rush towards that with the same intensity. Like they don't mind meeting someone and dating for a few years before they get married. <laughs> but Cleo and Frank are both, you know, they're searching. They're both searching so desperately and they find in each other what they hope is they find light in each other, but what they actually find is a mirror to their own darkness. And they're not able, either of them really, to create that light that they both so desperately seek until they face their own darkness. But they kind of avoid doing that by looking at each other instead. So rather than turning inwards, they turn outwards to the other with some, in some ways, I think, beautiful results and in other ways, very disastrous results. It's a particular type of person who would be willing to get married after six months. <laughs> and when you meet the other, I think, you know, they're like a firework. They go off in the air with this like beautiful explosion but it's a little scary when the embers fall back down to earth you know you just said it now that these are two characters who are desperately searching for you know some sense of of belonging but also happiness and a better mm. understanding and acceptance of themselves and what would you say that better understanding that acceptance is for Cleo and Frank individually they're such different characters, part I mean, just because they're different people, but also Cleo is a woman in her 20s and Frank is a man in his 40s. So those are very different life stages to be in, you know, drastically different. Um, and I think what Cleo is looking for is she wants to belong to New York as a city. You know, she's on a group, you know, she's on a student visa that's about to run out. She wants to be an artist. She wants to be a painter, but she hasn't quite sort of broken into that scene yet. She is looking, I think, to become part of this somewhat rarefied world in New York. She wants to be, she wants to be a create an artist. She wants to be free. She wants to be able to live in the city that she loves. She wants to have financial security, which she definitely doesn't have at the opening of the novel. And I think she wants adventure and excitement. And I think she wants to be desired. And initially she gets all of those things from Frank. She gets them immediately. And I think what Frank is looking for is a man in his 40s who has had a lot of success and, you know, has the American citizenship, has the career, has the apartment that he owns. I think he is looking and yet still doesn't feel satisfied, you know, still doesn't feel like he's done enough or is enough. I think he looks to Cleo and her youth and her beauty and her sort of vibrancy. And he is hoping to find in her this like injection of kind of vivaciousness and life that he probably feels that he's lacking. And that sort of exchange between young women and older men, you know, that currency that women very briefly are granted of youth and desirability 
which can feel like power, but is in fact incredibly illusory and often is not real power at all. And what men sort of gain from these young women, which is this sense of um, connection to, you know, a life that perhaps they feel is, is no longer there, you know, that they may have aged out of. It's incredibly seductive. And we've seen, we see that dynamic over and over again. It's not an unusual thing to see an older man with a younger woman. But I was interested in exploring that not as an archetype, but actually as two individuals. Like what works about that dynamic and what doesn't, you know, and, and why, why would you enter into this, you know? And so, and I think at first I understand why they do, because I think both of them are getting something they really want from the other, but ultimately it's, it's not what they need. Definitely. And, you know, I think you hit the nail on the head right there. And one of the reasons that this book is so popular is because you you tackle some very weighty but very relevant subject matter, but you do it sensitively and you also do it honestly. And as a result, all of your characters that you've created are very human and very relatable. But I want to know what would be one thing or maybe two things that you would really like people to take away from reading this book? Mm, that's a great question. I think what I hope people are left with is just a sense of connection to other human beings. I think in this novel, particularly, I write from you know, a number of different perspectives. And many of them, as you get closer to the character, is very different perhaps than what you would expect from how they appear on the outside. And I think that sense of empathy and compassion even for a character, even if they're very different to you, is a is a wonderful feeling to be left with at the end of a book. And I also hope that people, readers feel seen in some way. I hope, you know, that they feel that some of their own experience or thoughts or emotions are reflected in the novel and that they feel less alone with them and that they feel, I mean, connection. I think it always comes back to connection to me. That's why I read. That's why I write. Um, it's a profound feeling to finish a book or be halfway through a book and think, yes, like that's exactly what I've thought. I have thought that or felt that, but I've never been able to put it in words like that. And when authors have given that gift to me, it's it's life affirming. So I really hope I, I give that to some readers. I saw on your Instagram account, on your pinned post, that Warner Brothers is developing this book into a series, which is Fantastic news. And I'm sure that you have <laughs> on who should play who. I'm sure you have a mood board. <laughs> I'm sure you have a I do. <laughs> Are you going to be there for every step of the process? Or how is that development working? Yes, I am because I am the creator and writer. So I, you know, sometimes when you have a book optioned, the writer isn't particularly involved. Mm -hmm. But for this book, I think especially because it's my first, um, I really wanted to be involved in the process and I really wanted to write the pilot. So um, we have a wonderful director, Maggie Kiley, who um, I'm working with, and we have a great production company, Brownstone. And yeah, it's, I mean, right now, obviously everything's on pause because there's WGA strike, which I fully support. So it's a, it's a slow process development at the best of times. And at the moment it's, it's paused for even longer, who knows for how long, but it's incredibly exciting to think of it being a TV show. And I think, you know, I, I don't think every single book that I write or that anyone writes is as ripe for adaptation as others. I think this one specifically for me feels like, yes, like I can really, I think the characters, the scenes, like the dialogue, like I felt 
pretty strongly that this one would work, you know? And I don't think things should just be adapted to be adapted. Like when I wrote this book, loads of people were like, oh, well, do you think it'll be a TV show? And, you know, I've talked very publicly about how hard I found it to get this book published. And I was like, I mean, who cares if it's a TV show? I'm like, I just want it to be a book. Like all I've ever wanted is to have a book <laughs> in the world. So it was not my aim to have it be adapted. But now that it is, I'm really, I'm really delighted about it. I've heard that you have also wrapped your second book. And I wanted to know, after an incredibly successful first one has been published, was there ever any pressure, right? It's almost, it's like the musician and the first album that does very well. And then there's, there's all of that pressure with the second album to deliver. Whereas the first one, if it took a while, there were not necessarily any expectations. How do you feel now that the second book is done and dusted? I mean, it's, I actually, I feel very lucky because I started writing this second book in 2020. So I started it two years before Cleopatra and Frankenstein came out. Like that two year waiting period, waiting for this book to publish is when I wrote the vast majority of Blue Sisters. So I didn't really have that feeling of, you know, like a sophomore album because I, the first book hadn't come out and I, full transparency, I hadn't sold it for a lot of money. So I wasn't fully, I wasn't really expecting it to be a ginormous hit. I was just completely thrilled and over the moon that it was just going to be in a bookstore and that someone other than my immediate family could buy it. So I really didn't feel any sense of pressure at all because I just thought, oh, you know, the first one is coming out wonderful. It'll probably be a small novel that not many people read. So now I'm going to write a second book. Um, and so, and then I wrote, I finished Blue Sisters. I mean, I'm still actually, I'm still doing a last edit on it with my publishers. And then I worked on it for one more year after Cleopatra and Frankenstein came out. And actually that just like gave me kind of fuel for the tank because it was like, I just felt so happy to have readers i just thought oh my god like now i'm writing a book and i know, at least know some people will read it and this is so cool so it, it didn't that was lucky but i think my third book actually i probably feel a little bit more of what you're describing which is that sense of like i want to live up it's not it's not living up to readers expectations i want to live up to my own expectations of myself and i want to always be pushing myself to write something challenging and new. And, um, you know, my first book is written from so many different perspectives. My second book is written from three perspectives in close third. And the challenge for me was to really stick with these three sisters and not slide sideways and, you know, kind of get out by like, I'm like writing from someone else. Like I really had to go deep, 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 deep with these three sisters. And I, I feel, I hope for me, it, it's the it's a more mature novel and it's the it's the most like kind of psychologically and emotionally intense book that I've ever written. My third book is going to be all in first person and that is a totally new challenge for me. I don't feel very comfortable in first. I feel very comfortable in third person as a point of view. Um, but I'm like, the things that make me uncomfortable, the things that scare me, that's what I have to run towards. So as long as I feel like I'm challenging myself and I'm proud of the book, you just, you have to have faith that that it will, that other people, it will find the right people. And sometimes that means less readers, more readers, but it, um, as long as I'm pleased, I'm like, surely someone else will like this. <laughs> in all of the press that you've done, in all of the, the bookshops that you've been into, where you've seen the displays in the window and, you know, the, I'm, I'm, I'm sure that that's incredibly rewarding, but how has this whole experience made you feel like, Thinking back on when you first started, when you had the idea when you first started writing, to now to see the evolution of the book and how people have embraced it, how does it 
make you feel? I mean, when I was back in England and I did the book tour for Waterstones, where I would go to the different Waterstones and I would see the book, it would be a full display in the window. I cried every time. <laughs> like I was, I was completely incapable of seeing that. Or I would, you know, I was walking around London, especially because it was my hometown. You know, London was where I grew up and you know, I wanted to be a writer ever since I can remember. So I remember being a child in London, you know, going to bookstores with my mom and dreaming, dreaming one day that I would have a book in a store. And um, I just, it's like none of it. It's like, I just, I hope I never, I don't think I ever will, to be honest. It's like, it just, it never doesn't feel incredible to me. There's like no part of it that doesn't feel like a, almost like a fantasy, like a complete dream come true, especially because, you know, this book, it was really hard to sell, you know? So I really didn't have that experience of like, oh, I wrote a book for a couple of years and then my agent took it out and then we had a bidding war and then it went to the highest, you know? It was like, I wrote this book for four years. I got an agent. I worked on it for another year with my agent because it was in such a kind of, I'm not going to say shambolic state, but it was in, in an ambitious state that I don't feel that I had quite. And then it went out on submission and, you know, that process can take a month. It can take six months. I remember Googling, like, how long does it take to sell a book? Like, and my agent would sort of be like, it takes as long as it takes. It's very vague. And, you know, into a first novel, my God, it's like, you just put your heart out into the world and you're waiting for it to be either, you know, hugged or stomped on. And um, I think that process took six months to get all the rejections. And so over six months, I got 15 rejections in the US and 15 rejections in the UK. And it was just, you know, those six months were brutal, you know, like getting my hopes up and then, you know, another round of no's and just feeling like, oh, maybe this isn't going to happen for me. And I really remember like being on the phone. Well, I actually remember my sister was in New York. She was visiting and she came over and we were meant to go to a soul cycle class. And I, I just couldn't stop crying. And she just held me. And I was like, I just wanted it so badly. Like I really, really wanted it. And she, and it was just, she was just there, you know, and she just held me through that sadness. And then luckily there were two editors, one in the UK, one in the US who had said, because the thing is so many of the rejections were so kind, you know, and people really took the time to say that they loved the characters or they loved the scene or they loved the dialogue, but they just, the plot wasn't working in the book. And, you know, uh, there was just some structural elements that weren't quite right. And so these two editors said, you know, there's so much potential here and if Coco is willing to do a rewrite we'll read it again but it was a drastic rewrite so I took a month uh, it was a Christmas break and I was working this whole time so I took Christmas off and I worked on it all through Christmas and you know and I still and that was just that was all I needed just a little bit of hope you know just that feeling of like okay I've got another shot and so I was I was thrilled <laughs> you know I was like I back I was like let's go and then we sent it to those two editors and they both ended up buying it so it was just now just it never nothing about it feels inevitable to me. Nothing felt like it was definitely going to be a success or I was definitely even going to be in the world. So it just never gets old, to be honest. It never ever gets old. And I'm so grateful to every single person that bought the book. Like every single one of them matters to me. And I hope that I always feel that way about readers. And I, I think I will. <laughs> Coco, you really are a testament to talent and hard work paying off. And this is a fantastic book. It's entertaining. It's a moving read. I, I can't wait for your next novel. And I just wanted to say thank you very much for joining me today. And I hope I get the opportunity to chat to you again in the future when you release your second book. Oh, thank you so much. This was such a lovely chat. All the love from South Africa. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of PageCast. We love hearing from you. So if you'd like to get in touch, please contact us at pagecastpodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, keep reading and listening.